Well, it's my great joy today to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect word to Ephesians 6. And as we come to God's word today, as we read scripture together, know that these are the very words with which we are to arm ourselves. May we marvel that we get to read and hear the very words of God. When you've found Ephesians 6, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's perfect word. We're going to be looking at four verses today, verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Let's pray. Oh, Father, even as we hear these verses, we feel just our need for You. Help us, God. Uh, some of us today are, are weak. Some who are here today do not know You. Some are longing to know You more. Lord, help us to feel, to know, to be keenly aware of just how much we need You. Help us to feel our need of You. So we come hungry and thirsty to Your Word. God, would even now, would You drown out distractions, rob our focus and our affections? Lord, right now, would You... Silence our, our fears and our anxiety. Help us to cast those on You, knowing that You care for us. And if there is anyone here today who is um, just ready to give up the fight, to cease pursuing You, strengthen them today in Your Word. If there is anyone here who is held captive by the lies of the enemy, Lord, would You set them free through your word, and by the power of your spirit, help them to know your light and help us all to take up arms against the enemy. Cause us even now to be strong, not in our own strength, but in yours. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. Isn't it funny how... Uh, conversations you had with your parents as a child have a funny way of returning to you as an adult with your own kids, only you're on the other side of the argument. Even conversations that may seem silly or insignificant, small, sometimes trivial things, but you find yourself emptying every logical and rhetorical weapon in your arsenal to convince your three-year-old of something that he is convinced is not true. 
an example recently in, in my life. Uh, Daddy, I, I'd like sugar in my oatmeal. Sure, son. When he says that, he wants me to dump two sugar mountains on top of the oatmeal, and then he'll eat the sugar mountains and then the oatmeal. Now, okay, you can dump two piles of sugar and let the mountains rest on top of the oatmeal, but you know that's not how you're actually supposed to eat the oatmeal. You're supposed to mix in the sugar so that it makes the entire bowl of oatmeal sweet. But the problem for the child is, if you do that, in that case, then, as as oatmeal was intended to be eaten, he can't see the sugar. Even as the sugar is laced throughout the bowl now. He says, Daddy, there's no sugar in the bowl. And you just want to, trust me, son, I know you can't see the reality, but if you will take this spoon, take a spoonful of this, you will taste the reality. By the way, if I ever make oatmeal for any of y'all, I'm not stingy on my sugar mount, so it would be a sweet bowl of oatmeal. But isn't that the way? That for a three-year-old, there are some things that they cannot see, but are nevertheless so true. A bowl of oatmeal transformed by what is laced throughout, even though we can't see it. Y'all, you and I are so like three-year-olds. I think I'm learning more and more how much like a three-year-old I really am with every day of my three-year-old's life. Sometimes, perhaps often, the truest things are the hardest to see. In that sense, the truest things are the least obvious. And yet, they're like a, a thread that is stitched throughout the whole tapestry and and is holding it all together just like my son who says here's a sugar mound and here's the oatmeal we often like to compartmentalize our lives into these neat little boxes that are visible and plain to us rather than letting an external voice of truth who knows what they're talking about interpret our lives Like, we tend to separate the sacred and the secular, the spiritual life from the real life. We can try to sever spiritual from the actual everyday of our lives. But when we do this, we inevitably divide things that were never meant to be separated. After all, the majority of our lives are not lived in neat little boxes and divisions. We just finished the Thanksgiving holidays and and, and gatherings for many of you all. On that day, if you're like me, you're a messy mix of emotional states all at once. You know, you're you're frustrated with something silly like, oh, I've got all this food and not enough counter space. Like you live in that. And at the same time, you're frustrated because you've got that one relative that acts that one way all the time, every year. And at the same time, you're overwhelmed with joy just to be together, all of you. And even in that joy, you can taste stings of sadness as you miss a loved one who you lost, who's not there with you. See, the majority of these days and of your lives are not lived in one single pure state of emotion or being, but rather in attention. We live there intention of things. It's true for all people, but 
but so much more for the follower of Jesus. Our lives are lived in, on the perpetual crossroads of two worlds. The temporal and the eternal. The now and the not yet. The completed and the yet to be completed. The here and the there. You think about it even now, fellow Christians. You have not seen the face of the one who you love. And yet your heart knows him well. We somehow live in these worlds. Can, Can you feel that tension? The tensions that make up our lives. At this point in Ephesians, Paul is showing how the cosmic realities that are laced throughout the everyday world of our relationships are transformed by the gospel. He's, we just, uh, last week we talked about how it affects all of our relationships. Uh, parents and, and kids and husbands and wives and bondservants and masters. Our very existence is defined by larger and more significant realities that are laced through the mundane and the ordinary. We have to let God transform the way that we think and see our ordinary lives. So, what is that kind of life that exists in the tension? Like, what does that life look like? How do we summarize that experience? In the final section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he shifts into a final metaphor that that changes and summarizes the way that we think about living in that tension. He gives us a lens through which we are to understand the Christian life clearly, even if it means believing and acting on things that we can't see. How does Paul name the experience of the Christian life? What's living in the tension as a believer like? Paul says, it is wrestling. Living in the tension is a wrestling. Wrestling. Struggling between two two forces. Why wrestling? Why wrestling? And doesn't that fly in the face of everything we've seen in Ephesians so far? Like, think about chapter 1. In love, He predestined us. That was uh, chapter uh, verse 5. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What about the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated us with Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Now, that's just chapter 1. Like, like time would fail for us to consider the gospel summary of chapter 2, that He's made us alive together with Christ, that He has seated us with Him, that we who were once far off have now been brought near in Christ, that He's broken down the dividing wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. We don't have enough time to dwell on the mystery that is cosmic and now revealed in Christ. How He has raised us to new life in Christ and it changes everything. So, All that to say, if the fight has already been won, why the wrestling? Isn't that redundant? Has has Christ not won? Is He not victorious? 
Well, the answer to this question, as it's answered in our text today, is so very important because it emphatically concludes the Ephesians' letter. And it says something about ourselves, and it says something about our enemy, and most importantly, it says something about our God. So as we dive into the text, we see in verse 10, in the beginning of verse 11, putting on and being imitators. Verse 10, finally. Now, I'm an English teacher, and when I say finally in my lessons, it's like a saving grace for my students. Finally. Okay, we're coming up to the end. He's wrapping it up here. But that's not, that's not what is happening here. Paul is connecting all that he has said, both, both in the immediate context, but in the letter as a whole, he's tying it all up together in this final military image. Look back at verse 9. Masters, stop threatening your bondservants here. Know that he who is your master, both your master and your bondservant's master, is in heaven, there. So, so see how the there is transforming and clarifying the here. It redefines the here. The gospel gloriously invades our reality. Therefore, and so here it is, the final connection point. Therefore, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now, that can kind of be an initially odd thing to say. Just be strong. Just be stronger. Now, I don't know about you, but when I am struggling to lift something really, really heavy... It rarely makes me stronger when someone comes up to me and says, you know how you lift that? Just be stronger. Come on. Just, just be strengthened. I'm like, oh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. Great point. No, what, what Paul is saying here, though, is be strengthened or be made strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. What's interesting is that it's a passive command that is active. The strengthening power is coming from something other than you. And this isn't unique just to to Paul in this moment. He's picking up on Old Testament language. We just heard the choir lead us in a a song about David. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, it talks about how David found strength in the Lord. And Zechariah 10 is is God is is bringing home His people from exile. It, It says, I will make them strong in the Lord. God will make them strong in the Lord. But even in Ephesians, we we have seen this. Paul said in chapter 3, verse 16, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. The strengthening is rooted in the work and the power of God. Not you. And there is a way, an action that Paul calls you to today to appropriate that strength. So so yes, the strength is in the Lord, but there is a way in which we put it on. And that is to, what he says in verse 11, to put on the whole armor of God. Putting on the whole armor of God is how you walk out being strong and being strengthened in the Lord. And you can hear that throughout Ephesians, that put on language. I go back to to chapter 4, verse 24. Paul's talking about putting off the old self. Verse 24, he says, and put on the new self, 
created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Putting on the armor of God is an expression of putting on the new self that you already are in Christ. So it's, it's a call to action in this tension. It's a call to be an imitator of God, which is what he says in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Did you see that? It's, it's to be an imitator of God, not as a mere external act like you're pretending, but because of who you are, which is beloved children. It's an expression born out of who you are in Christ and the strength that comes from Him. To put on the new self is to put on the armor of God. Which means there isn't a version or a pathway of the Christian life in which you are exempt from the tension. In which you are exempt from the wrestling. From the battle. It's not a personality thing. I'm not really that much of of a fighter. No. If you would follow Jesus, then you would take up the armor of God and wrestle, standing up against the devil. And so, be strengthened in the strength of His might by taking up and putting on the whole armor of God. Do not take this wrestling lightly. Don't imagine this as trivial. Don't imagine it as futile. Futile. But see what this actually means. We must, what we see next, we must know the enemy and know Christ. Know the enemy and know Christ. Put on, verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Schemes of the devil. Now what are these? Well, to understand this, what the schemes of the devil are, are we need to understand who we're actually wrestling against. We have to know the enemy. So, lest there be any confusion here, Paul clarifies in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, and there's, there's an implied here, but we wrestle against. So, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the rulers. We wrestle against the authorities. We wrestle against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. No, over and over again, we wrestle. We wrestle. Now, that word that's used here, it's really found nowhere else in the Greek Bible. It refers to the sport of wrestling in the first century. Wrestling was and is an exhausting sport. But notice that he doesn't use the word battle here or or war. Not that that would be inappropriate. But he picks this word wrestling. A very close term. Hand-to-hand combat. And yet, the, the true enemy is on a cosmic scale. Rulers, authorities who stand opposed to God. Cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. Enemies that we can't see. Raging in a near and close battle. Closer than we are really comfortable with. And it's with these that you wrestle against. 
You wrestle against those kinds of powers. Wrestling takes effort and endurance. It takes strategy and wisdom. It's really near. It is in your face. And as you hear this today, maybe you feel really ill-equipped for that kind of a fight with these kinds of enemies. Maybe you just feel exhausted today. And how, how can we even hope to wrestle against these? Isn't your, your wrestling just futile against these enemies? How are we to strengthen ourselves against these kinds of enemies? But I think we like to keep this whole strengthening thing really distant and conceptual sometimes. And when you do that, you're setting yourself up to doubt and disbelieve the strength and power of God that is to be in your face in your life. That really says more about what you believe about Christ than these enemies. So let's go back to the beginning. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He has put all things under His feet. Gave him his head over all things to the church. The same immeasurable power, the same great might that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father in full and final victory, that is the might that you are to be strengthened with. Well, that sound, sounds good, but that, isn't that like a, to, to Jesus? That, no, no, verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? It's towards us. So we don't tremble at the authorities of darkness. They tremble at Christ. There is a reason when a demon-possessed man from the garrison countryside stands before Jesus in Mark 5 that he throws himself down before Jesus and the demons cry out to and beg to Jesus. It's because Jesus is victorious and He is the authority. And you, brother and sister, you are inheritors of that power through your union with Christ. Our God is a mighty warrior. He is the God who created the heavens and the earth. He splits mountains and He opens valleys. You can be strong in the Lord Because the Lord is strong. You can be strong in the Lord because the Lord is strong. So what are the devil's schemes? They are multiple and varied. In chapter 4, Paul lists ways that the devil seeks an opportunity or to gain a foothold in your life. Anger, stealing, corrupting talk, bitterness, Wrath, clamor, slander, sexual immorality. But behind all of the manifestations of the enemy's attacks is a strategy of deceit and lies. Listen to this really closely because you need to see something here. 
For you, believer, the enemy seeks to poison your heart by twisting the truth. That you might look for righteousness and validation in yourself, which is the wrong place. He aims to ruin your peace and attack your faith and poison your mind with the fear. Did God really say? See, Satan's strategy, if you heard those, are the inverse of the armor of God that we'll see next week. He seeks to attack truth, righteousness, peace, salvation, faith, and God's Word. The reason we take up the full armor of God is because the armor of God, those are the very things that Satan hates. And one of Satan's schemes that tragically works so well against Christians is to attack your view of God's heart toward you as you struggle and wrestle. Like What you believe about Christ's victory, and especially about the victor, defines how you wrestle. And some of you are wrestling this morning with pressing temptations in your life. Some of you are very much at war. You're, you're, you're struggling with, with dread and fear that what God says about you isn't true. Some of you are at war with past failures that come up over and over again in your mind. And as you, child of God, wrestle to look to God and to trust Him to receive His forgiveness of you, you, fa- you can fall into the temptation to believe that He looks on you with disdain and contempt. Like that God is annoyed with you. Like that you've heard and believed that God has forgiven your sin, but then you picture God as begrudging this. Like He rolls His eyes and He grits His teeth. And after you leave, He turns around and like talks to other people about you. Like... Some of you who are children of God by faith in Christ this morning believe the lie that God is just putting up with you. You see God as this very bitter judge towards you. Now don't mishear me. God is holy and His wrath burns against unrighteousness, unholiness, and sin. And rightfully so. You don't don't want to serve a God who is unholy. You don't, and you certainly don't want an unholy God upholding the universe. But when you see God as merely this bitter judge towards you who are in Christ, you miss it. For those who are in Christ by faith, God is not disgusted with you. His wrath doesn't burn against you. It burned against Christ. Until the flame of God's anger was extinguished, not because Christ has sinned, but because He carried your sin to the cross. And He took the righteous punishment in your place. The anger of God towards you has been forever emptied. God is not watching you and watching your struggles this week, sitting there with a magnifying glass and a hammer ready to just squash you. That is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because that Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. And I could go on and on. It's right 
Here, Ephesians 1, 3-14. Why this memory? Why memorizing this verse, these verses? Why are we doing that? Because believing this is where the battle is. Believing what these verses say about God's heart toward you and His plan for you and for all who would trust in Christ is the theater of this war. But how do you wrestle and fight with this enemy? Not with a whimper, but with a sword. This is that sword. Take it up, brothers and sisters. This is the true story of the world, of you, and of the enemy's crushing defeat. Take this up, O church, and put your armor on and wage war against the lies of the enemy by knowing his schemes and ultimately by knowing how all of those schemes are foiled in the victory of Christ. And church family, I want you to know the enemy's heart behind these attacks and his schemes. Because so often we try to... To make the enemy look less evil than he is, we, we try to soften the aim and the strategies of the enemy. We try to domesticate this enemy because it's uncomfortable to talk about Satan and particularly our own sin that we struggle with. And what Paul wants us to see is signaled by a contrasting clause here. Verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, Now that's not just a throwaway phrase here. It's corrective for us. Now don't misunderstand, Paul is is not denying that we can be deceived or tempted by other people. He says in chapter 4, verse 14, he warns us against being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and human cunning and schemes and craftiness. But Paul is saying here that our ultimate enemies are supernatural working to blind the minds of the unbelievers. Our enemies are not ultimately people, flesh and blood. And the temptation is to make other people your enemy. But they are not. They are not. Every so often, usually around VBS time, Pastor David will say something that, honestly, I really don't like to hear. As he's trying to cast vision for how we serve, particularly at VBS, he says, Satan hates kids, and we love kids. Every time I hear that, I just just cringe a little. Not because what Pastor David is saying is wrong, on the contrary. But doesn't that make you just sick to your stomach? Like those two words should never be coupled together. Hates children, hates kids. That's just wrong. And of course it is. That's his point, of course, when he says that. It should make you tense up. It should break your heart. And it should create a kind of right indignation in you. Satan hates children. He hates God's children. Satan and your sin hates the flesh and blood people who surround you in your life. And I don't echo this to frighten you, church, 
But I do say it because far too often you can hear that there is a lion prowling, seeking those he would devour, and somehow you and I are just at peace with that. Let the enemy hates people and somehow you cruise on like it's business as usual. You're comfortable with separating the sacred and the secular. Like, there's an appropriate way that I should talk to my neighbor. And it's not spiritual. Look, Satan is not making that division in his strategy. He sees that spiritual war is laced throughout the ordinary every day of our lives. And he is doing all that he can to get you to be blind to that. This is wrestling because this is personal. The powers of darkness, your own sin, and Satan indeed hates those whom God loves. Hates your kids and your neighbors. Hates your wife or your husband. Hates your family and you. And aims and endeavors to draw you all away from Christ. Church, take up arms. Rage against the captor. Do not whimper and be bashful before these evil authorities Take up the sword and in love preach the truth to one another and to yourself and to the lost. Recite these truths to your kids and talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Write them on the posts of your home. Tell your neighbor and your co-worker and your teammates and your classmates this hope. And may the enemy never divide us over preferences. May the enemy never tempt us to take our hands from the plow of the commission our Lord has given us to set the captive free by making disciples of all nations. Rage against the captor. But how do we rage against the captor? By loving the captive soul. That is how we rage against the captor. You don't rage against people. Your frustrating boss or your nosy neighbor or your, your son or daughter who kind of has selective hearing at your instruction of them. They're not your enemy. They're the very ones that we run to in love. Even the the human ones who hate our gospel message, who don't want to hear it, we are to proclaim the gospel truth in love to them. Knowing that they're held captive by the enemy. The enemy's strategy is to get you to channel your anger towards the wrong recipients. Not towards the true enemy. To make you hate the very ones that you are free to love in Christ. And finally, Paul calls us to stand firm and to wrestle with all boldness. Look at verse 13. He he repeats what he's already said. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Now, this, this word here, this phrase, evil day, a lot can be said about it. it. It likely refers to both this evil age where the enemy is seeking to deceive many, But it also points to the reality that sin and Satan's attack can come distinctly and forcefully in different and specific situations. What this means is we are to always be wary and we are to always be wrestlers. There is no vacation from this 
wrestling. I want to return to how does a faithful Christian wrestle well? What does a Christ-centered, sanctified aggression look like? It looks like putting on the character of Christ. We fight by knowing and comprehending what we have prayed for all year, that we could comprehend the height and the depth and the length of the love of Christ. That's how we stand firm. We rage against the hatred of the enemy with humility and gentleness and patience toward flesh and blood, the people in our lives. Chapter 4, verse 2, bearing with one another in love. We speak the truth in love to one another within the church and to the watching world. And hear the cosmic backdrop of that, speaking the truth in love. How do we battle the enemy in the heavenly places? By speaking the truth in love in the earthly places. By putting on the character of Christ, our lives must ooze with the love of Christ toward flesh and blood. To be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is not weakness. This is boldness and it is strength. We are at war. There should be a pounding in your heart and a thunder in your mind and a resolve in your will and a gospel battle cry in your throat. This is what propels us not to an angry, pouty, grumpy self-righteousness, but to a gentle, patient, bold, confident self-sacrifice. Looking first to the gospel good of others rather than first to ourselves. The pathway of victory in our wrestling is the Calvary road of Christ. It is marked by humility and sacrifice that costs us much. It is a pathway of suffering. But that, dear Christian, is the pathway to victory. It is through the cross that Christ receives the crown. And ours is His path. But it is not hopeless. It's the opposite. Look how Paul finishes. And having done all to stand firm. Having done all. Get this, it's like a picture of a soldier who's been given a task or a mission or orders. Hold this ground. And upon completing that task, completing the orders, he stands firm to the very end. We're nearing the end of our time in Ephesians. And I think that you know this image of the soldier doing all is really helpful because it's it's relevant to how Paul's relationship with the Ephesians looked. In Acts 20, Paul speaks to the elders of Ephesus one last time. And he says to them, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But, may you and I be able to say this with Paul, But I do not account my life as any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry 
I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Having done all, I hope, and and this is my prayer for you, that at the end of your days, no matter if you see yourself as rich or poor, if you're successful by whoever's standards, if you're driving the car you wanted, if you're living in the house that you wanted, if you have as much in retirement as you wanted, if all the things outside of your control happened or did not happen as you wanted, my prayer for you is that at the end, when the curtain is peeled back and you finally look into the face of Christ your captain, you can say, even as your hope rests in His work, that you can say, I have done all, I gave it all, I surrendered it all, I wrestled with absolutely every fiber of my being on this battlefield. May that be our legacy, Ashland. That we gave it all in your wrestling. No matter the immediate outcome, the ultimate outcome has already been decided because the battle was fought and won in Christ. And that makes your wrestling have meaning and not futility. That's what makes your wrestling matter. Even as you say this, can you you see the invisible enemy tremble at this kind of view of life? When we see the actual battle that is being fought in the mundane and the ordinary of our lives, what is actually laced in the ordinary that we can't see with our own eyes, It's only in Christ that you can say with Paul, I go forward and wrestle and the cost may very well be my life, but in that loss I am victorious. Even the shadows of death are eclipsed by the blazing sun of the resurrected Christ. He holds the keys of death in His hand and He wears the crown of victory on His brow. And so... Onward, to wrestle with all that we are, because all that we are is forever secure in the victory of Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to wrestle well. To be quick to surrender all that we are, even especially the areas that we don't want to surrender. Lord, may we wrestle and rage against the captor, knowing that You have brought the death blow to the serpent, and that it is in You we are free to wrestle. So Lord, help us. Make us bold and confident and certain. And We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.